0: To claim your special offer, come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hold up.
1: Shares for beginners.
2: I mean, our brains have been wired by evolution to run from lions and to hunt mammoths and all those kinds of things. They haven't been wired to necessarily invest in the stock market. And of course, there are people out there who know how we're wired and they play on that wiring to try and get us to do things that they want. Which aren't in our own best interest. So, the only real way around that is to understand that Mr. Market is going to be optimistic one day and
3: pessimistic another day, it's going to be bipolar, and just having a framework to deal with that. G'day, and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How disciplined are you when you buy shares in a company? What are your reasons for buying, holding, and eventually selling? Do you even have a plan? My guest today is the hard taskmaster of share investment and the Zen master behind the QAV investing podcast, an old friend of this podcast, Tony Kynaston. Hi, Tony. Hi, Phil. I don't know about being a hard taskmaster. Oh, you are. (laughs) This is the way you made me feel because I I just wanted to start with a story. But before that, I just wanted to say QAV stands for quality at value and sums up the philosophy of your investing methodology. That'd be correct to say. It's correct,
2: yeah. Yeah. But I'm really an old softie. I'm not a hard taskmaster at all.
3: (laughs) No, it's just, I call you that because I remember we were having a discussion one day and I just said to you, you know, because, you you know, it's like people talk about companies and shares and what they want to buy. And I said, oh, you know, when CSL hits 280, when it drops to 280, I'm going to buy it. And you said, why? And that was the most devastating (laughs) (laughs) why I ever felt because I could feel behind that there was so much to do with your way of thinking about buying companies. Mm.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And that's the pertinent question. It's why. Why 280 and not 290 or not 270? Mm. Why CSL and not something else? And I think, yeah, I mean, what I've learned over the years is you've got to answer these questions. You've got to systematize it. So next time you get asked the same question, you've got the answer already. Mm. You don't have to work from scratch. And you develop rules. And the rules are really important because... We're all human beings with our own biases and our own psychologies and points of view and opinions, but you want to put that aside when the market throws you up a question like oh cSL 's dropped to two hundred and eighty dollars should I buy it or not? You should have the answer already worked out because it 's part of your system it 's either a yes or no you shouldn 't have to think about it because if you think about it it 'll be oh it 's two eighty maybe if I wait another day it 'll be two seventy five and i 'll get it cheaper and then it goes to two hundred and ninety and you miss out so you need to have a a predetermined framework to answer those questions when they get tossed to you.
3: And that framework also, like I said in the introduction, is about holding as well mm-hmm. and then selling, so, you know, yeah. whether it's because there's a loss and you need to get out or mm-hmm. what is a significant enough gain to justify the selling?
2: Yeah, I think the selling rules are equally as valid as the buying rules. And, 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 o- and holding. And holding too. Mm. And oftentimes people neglect the selling side. They're all focused on buying CSL so at 280 bucks. Mm the flip side of that coin is at what price do you sell it Mm. or under what conditions do you sell it you probably can't nominate a price and so yeah part of the investment philosophy I have is I have a set of rules that I apply to selling and it's got to do with what's happening with sentiment is the share price dropping too much I've already set a—I call it a stop loss I've already set a sell price for what I think the the time is for me to get out I will sell something if I buy it and it drops more than 10% what I paid for I'll just clear out and you know, look for the next bus, Mm. clear out a dodge and wait for the next wagon train to come along and, you know, either get back into CSL or buy something different. There are other rules around, you know, what happens if the CFO unexpectedly resigns. What happens if an independent director unexpectedly resigns? So oftentimes there's some red flags around those kinds of things. So there's probably four or five rules that I've got in my toolbox that I can just trot out as they happen without having to think about it. Oh, why did the CFO unexpectedly resign? What's going on there? Because you'll never find out. Mm. But experience has told me that's a red flag to look
3: for and a reason to sell a stock. Yep. Give us the thirty thousand foot overview of quality and value.
2: Yeah, so I'm a value investor, but what I found over the years is that quality is also important because some things are cheap for a reason and you don't necessarily want to get stuck into those into buying a portfolio of cheap stocks which are just going to stay cheap. So you do need to check the quality of the company as well that you're buying. But I mean there are enough stocks on our share market that there is always going to be a value end to the market.
0: Mm.
2: And, you know, my entry into investing seriously was through people like Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, all those famous value investors who just have written loads on value investing. And it just maybe it just suited my personality to have a, a framework to do things with, to have a system of rules to apply. And I kind of cherry picked points from each of those people and added a whole lot more because, you know, I think, share market evolved since those guys were first talking. And even someone like Warren Buffett comes out now and says, I'm basically a quality investor rather than a value investor. So he's evolved. Mm. But I was able to distill things down into 20-odd questions, put them in a checklist. I think the real benefit for people who've been investing during our time period is the amount of data that's now available to a retail investor has just grown and grown and grown. I mean, when I first started investing back in the 90s. I used to buy like a telephone book of one page summaries of the annual reports of, of all the companies and I'd have to leave through that, read them all, you know, do some manual calculations, work out what was cheap, do some more deep dive research in paper. But now, you know, I can screen the stock market and drop it into a spreadsheet in a matter of seconds, if not minutes, and have Excel crunch through the numbers and come up with a a list of stocks to have a look at. And that process is helped by having a checklist. So that's the other, I guess, part of my evolution that was really important was I used to have all these ideas in my head. You know, this is a situation which looks like it's worth investigating. But I read the book, The Checklist Manifesto, which talked about pilots before they take off. Checking all their controls, running through a checklist, and that's reduced the error rate, the crash rate in in airlines dramatically over the years. And it was picked up by surgeons who said, How come we're killing people on the operating table through basic mistakes? And so now they use checklists before they operate, and that's reduced deaths in the hospitals. And I took that and applied it to the rules I already had and just doing that, coupling it with being able to download data quickly and then run it through Excel has made the process really, really quick to scan for those kinds of situations that that meet my window for investing.
3: I think people don't really understand this when they first approach the share market. They think that um, there must be some easy steps to start making money, but it is really a lot of hard work, isn't it? Yeah. And and QAV, it's not something that you just sort of go and get the spreadsheet and plug it in and you start using it. It's actually quite a long process to learn and to to work into your own investing philosophy. Correct.
2: We are teaching a process which you can't just pick up And to be fair to people who might be listening to this who haven't heard of QAV, it also requires not just an investment in time, but there's a bit of money involved. Like we suggest people subscribe to Stock Doctor. There's a subscription to our service in QAV. But, I mean, you get that money back in multiples from the benefits of of applying the process. But, yeah, it involves a commitment in both time and money. It's a professionalisation, I guess, of what's been a, a hobby, But it's involving real money and you're playing for big stakes, so it's worth it.
3: Mm. So it's kind of grown into quite a community now, hasn't Mm. it? It's a great community. You go into the Facebook group and not only is it a very pleasant community without too much argy-bargy, but people are asking very intelligent questions and providing a lot of intelligent input into people's investing styles.
2: Yeah, I love our community. That's been Mm. probably the real find of QAV for me from my point of view. Generally, the people that gravitate towards us are sort of mid-career professionals who are starting to think about their long-term future, have maybe bought their house already, started to pay it down. They're starting to have more time to focus on their investments. They're thinking about whether they're getting a good deal from their financial advisors or their super funds, and they're starting to dip their toe in the water. And just, I guess, because of that kind of filtering process, we get smart people into the community and they ask great questions, really thought-provoking questions. Mm. Um, and they help each other. Some people who subscribed didn't want to join Facebook. they deliberately gotten off social media because of all the negatives that come with it. But I think the group that we've got there is just the reverse. It's just supportive. It's positive. It's really good.
3: What have you found that's common to these people that uh, makes them interested in the DIY approach? Yeah, I think, like I said, they're smart. They're generally coming from a professional,
2: if not professional, then a small business background. The really other interesting thing is there's such a market out there for more information on how to do this yourself. The whole industry is geared towards getting you to sign up with a financial advisor or getting you to sign up with a WRAP platform or a super fund or whatever. And, you know, having done parts of the AFSL course to obtain a licence, that's not necessarily the best way to invest because, you know, there's a whole lot of other moving parts that are going on there, most of which are around keeping a lid on risk. But as we all know, risk and reward are a trade-off, and if you keep a lid on risk, you're probably not going to get much more than the index in terms of the share market investing, and therefore you may as well buy an ETF or an index fund or an LIC and save the fees. But if you really want to do better than that, then you've got to dig around and and come up with your own system. It's not hard to do better than that. And people sort of intuitively know that they can do better than that. It's just finding the right system and approach to do it.
3: Yeah, finding the path or the way. Yeah. Or, yeah. I so hate the term journey, investment journey, right. which you hear right over the way. I'm going to institute El Camino the way, the, way, yeah, <laughs> the investing <right>. <laughs> way. <laughs> so it's, it really is important to have a systematic approach. And it's not going to resonate. QAV is not going to resonate with everybody. No. And there are plenty of other approaches Correct. as well and some of them are more technical and Mm -hmm. some of them are more value like your own. But Mm -hmm. it's really about having a system and sticking to that system, isn't it?
2: Yeah, look, I don't really care if people are out there buying high-growth stocks if they're buying Bitcoin. I mean, it's up to them. It's a broad church. Mm. There are plenty of ways to make money, but just... Work out what you're doing first. As you encounter issues and problems, think about how you respond to it. Write it down as part of your system. So the next time it happens, you know what to do. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And as I said before, get the basics right. Get the framework right on when you're going to buy, when you're going to sell, how long you hold for, all those kinds of things. And part of that is is valuation. So you're not just buying a story. You're buying something when the price is right and not overcooked. So all those kinds of things need to be distilled down into your formula and your system. But you've got to have one.
3: Yep. And it's something that helps you to deal with the emotions that inevitably arise when your money's on the line.
2: (laughs) Correct. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's a really big part of investing and taking the emotion out of it's um, another benefit of having a system because, yeah, like I think after a while I... Don't think about the money in terms of dollars and cents. I think about it as a piece or a token, I guess. You know, I've got a portfolio of 15 to 20 tokens, and this is what they're all doing. And I tend not to focus on the dollar value. And that's something that comes after a while of, of moving money around. But that's an important part of the El Camino as well, mm. of the journey. But yeah, it, I mean, our brains have been wired by evolution to run from lions and to hunt mammoths and and all those kinds of things they haven't been wired to necessarily invest in the stock market and of course there are people out there who know how we're wired and they play on that wiring to try and get us to do things that they want which aren't in our own best interest so the only real way around that is to understand that mr market is going to be optimistic one day and pessimistic another day is going to be bipolar and just having a framework to deal with that
3: And I remember a previous episode we called Situation Normal. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And this was just when everything was going down in 2020, March 2020, um, when we had the first COVID situation. Mm. And it was just great to say situation normal. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Don't think about it. Correct. Mm.
2: That's exactly right. This is a market, just like uh, if you go to the gold market in Abu Dhabi and Dubai and haggle with the people selling you different types of gold, mm. you're going to have good days, bad days, come back next week and everything's going to be twice the price. All those kinds of things happen in markets and they go up and down. And you, again, if you don't have the framework for dealing with that, the first time you go through a crash, it's like, what the hell just happened? How come I've lost all this money? You'll be the roadkill you won't be on the journey, you'll be the (laughs) roadkill. So you've got to have a way of approaching that systematically and that helps you mentally deal
3: with it as well. Mm. Are there any common questions and comments that come from listeners and uh, subscribers to QAV that you've noticed recur?
2: Yeah, I think probably the most common one is that they get QAV, they're implementing QAV. And then they take their eye off the ball, something happens, or they didn't apply the rules diligently. And that's a big thing. I mean, I remember going to the first dinner we had in Melbourne with our listeners. And, uh, you know, one of them said, what's the number one thing I need to do now that I'm getting involved in QAV? And I switched across and I'm investing with it. And I said, I understand, you've got to do this every day for the rest of your life. You have to be diligent. And so the common questions that we get are, oh, I miss the sell price for that stock and it's dropped further, what do I do? Mm. You know, and that's a common type question. And what do you say to that? Well, the rule is there. Yeah. It's below the sell price. Mm -hmm. You're still holding it. Sell it. (laughs) Move on. Yeah. It could go further. You've got to have these rules because there was one case I heard of recently where not a QAV stock, but someone who was investing in the small end of the market bought into a company. The share price dropped. They thought the correct thing to do was to double down and buy more. The share price dropped again, and then they asked the question, oh my God, what do I do? So again, if they're applying the QAV methodology, there's rules around all those things. You don't double down. If it's below the sell price, you sell and you move on. There's plenty of other stocks that are above their sell prices and going up to make that money back with.
3: Mm. Any other stories like that? Any other comments that you get? The
2: other one I think that's been common is people will come in and I encourage them to try and improve the process. Like if they've had a background of investing using, I don't know, return on capital as a key metric for it, which we don't use, what sort of insights can they bring to us from that? But what tends to happen is, and and so again, the process is if you want to change the QAV checklist, that's fine. Run it on paper first for a while. Don't use more than 10% of your portfolio to try out the new thing. And then if it works... And we're talking about sort of a 12-month process there because you need to go through a couple of cycles in the market Mm. of results announcements and all the rest of it, a couple of seasons. Then we can look at putting it into our checklist. But what tends to happen is people go, well, so-and-so on this other podcast said this, so I decided I was going to do some QAV and some of that. And, Mm. of course, when the cake doesn't rise, when it goes in the oven, they come back and say, what went wrong? (laughs) (laughs) You've ridden two horses and they went different ways. That's what went wrong. Yeah, so I don't mind if people want to try and improve the process, but there is a process for improving the process. Yeah,
3: (laughs) that's great. A process for improving the process. A process
2: for everything. You know, don't have to think about it. (laughs) Hold
1: up.
3: So how much time is involved with the QAV process? You say people have got to look at it every day. How many hours every day? Oh, no,
2: they don't look at it every day, no. It's more, I encourage people to do things like read the financial press every day. So I'd, I'd spend an hour a day every day reading the AFR, That sometimes will lead me to check a stock, like there might be a news story in there about a CFO resigning or something happening, some merger and acquisition activity going on, and that might make me do a bit of research. But generally, it's about an hour a day. In company reporting season, and because we're focused on using the numbers, we're running our downloads almost every day. It can ramp up to a couple of hours a day, but that's usually for about two weeks, twice a year. But generally, you're not doing much more than monitor
3: things. So we're recording today on the 18th of November and the market seems to have been not really going in any direction, in any particular way. What are your thoughts at the moment?
2: Yeah, I'm finding it a very choppy market at the moment, probably since the dividend season happened, the end of the financial year and companies started paying dividends. Normally they'd drop down by two or three percent then buying would come in and they'd they'd go back up. But um, the sort of downturns have dragged on for a lot longer this time and gone a bit deeper. There's people out there worried about inflation which is usually bad for share investing. Not always, and there are companies which it helps, but as the price of borrowing goes up, it's a cost to companies, so um, it can affect their profits. There's things like the Chinese property developer Evergrande, which is looking very shaky, and the Chinese property market, which might cause some ructions worldwide if it starts to go down or collapse. but An, all an attack, th- and
3: attack on Taiwan. Yeah, perhaps, all these things
2: know? are in the thinking, I think, at mm-hmm. the moment in the market. Probably inflation is the biggest one. But again, you know, our process is not to have a position on those. It's to keep following the process. And yes, I probably turned over more stocks than I normally would because they are sketchy in terms of getting close to their sell prices for me more than regularly. But again, that's just situation normal for the market. You go through periods of this happening and then it will resolve itself one way or the other. It'll either crash like it did during COVID
3: or it will go sideways or it will go up and you just Mm. can't predict it. Yeah, it's interesting. That's something that I've learned over the last couple of years of doing this podcast. I used to have this idea that markets would be moved by politics. Mm -hmm. They are by policy, but politics has nothing to do with it, really. Yeah, it's interesting. Changes of government don't seem to really affect markets or, um, you know, changes of leadership like we've had in prime ministers in Australia Mm. over the last few years. Mm. Politics doesn't really have a lot to do with it, does it? No. And it's a misconception for it some is, people. And there's, yeah.
2: and there's kind of also the other misconception that the share market does better under a conservative government, both mm. in the states and here. And that's been exposed under research. It doesn't always work that way. In fact, it tends to favour the other side of politics a bit better. But again, that's, you know, potentially just a statistical anomaly. But yeah, your comment was correct. It's the policy that affects the share market. And I can think of a number of examples where governments change policy and it's really affected a particular company or a particular sector. I remember when Kevin Rudd was prime minister and they decided to change salary packaging. And there was a company called Macmillan Shakespeare, which its whole bread and butter is to package up cars and as part of a salary package and other mm. benefits. And it dropped dramatically the day after that was announced. So policy can have a real
3: impact on the share market, not so much who's in charge. You spoke about dividends a, a moment ago. How much do dividends factor into the QAV process? And um, it's not just about growth, is it? Dividends are part of it as well? Yeah. So
2: in fact, the fact is in a couple of parts of the checklist. So we look for a companies which pay a dividend above the mortgage rate. Only because if a company is paying a good solid dividend, it's a vote of confidence by the board that it will continue to be profitable because the last thing a board of directors ever want to do is to cut their dividend. That's virtually capitulation that they're telling the shareholders, look, room for a rough patch and we didn't see it coming and that's not a good look for a board of directors so they try and hold on to their dividend no matter what so if they do raise it they've got to be really certain that the future looks bright for the company so that's one indicator of health another one that i've found over the years as a case-by-case situation is sometimes you find a company with a very low pe and a dividend that's above that pe and when you find that situation it's a really good sweet spot and that generally is a great value buy for a company but again they're just a couple of points on the checklist everything else has to be right as well not just those two things but that's how the checklist evolves over time you know i've seen something which works i've researched it it goes in the checklist and then it becomes part of the process going forward i think what's going on at the moment is with interest rates being low a lot of retirees have been forced out of fixed income investments and into the share market and particularly i think in the last half we're seeing what i'll call dividend harvesting going on so there are now funds, ETFs, LICs, which are basically there to provide a steady dividend income stream for a retiree, and that's fine. They're, I think, moving the market a lot more these days than they have in the past when interest rates were higher. So that's definitely having an effect. And Not always, but what they tend to do, or what they can do, is there's kind of a cycle to dividends in, in our country. So most companies have a end of June financial year finish date, and then they have a half end of December. So that's when most dividends get paid after that. But there are also companies like three of the four major banks, plus Macquarie, who have financial years ending in September. And so they pay dividends in between all the other companies. Mm. And there's a few like the retailers who have a financial year ending in January. Cause yeah, Harvey Norman's got a, yeah. a
3: strange cycle as well. Yeah, They
2: don't want to have mm. to do their, their accounts over Christmas, which is their busiest time. So there's almost like this sort of... Um, harvest them going through the market at different periods selling stocks and then buying the ones in advance of the next dividend you know they'll sell out of bhp in august when it pays its dividend buy into one of the banks or all the banks which then report in september they get a dividend from them in october november they're out of them then they're back into something else in december so it's kind of like this harvesting machine that's going on and i think
3: i don't have any direct evidence for
2: it but my gut feel is that's driving the market a bit too
3: Really? Okay. So you expect dividends to be part of the return on investment for the QAV investor?
2: Yes, we do favour stocks that pay dividends. Not every QAV stock pays a dividend, but we would probably get, I think from memory, our latest results were about 3% due to dividend income this year. Mm. And then the rest is growth on top of
3: that. And presumably franking credits as well.
2: Correct, yeah, Mm. which have different meanings to different people, whether it's in a self-managed super fund or in your own name or whatever,
3: yeah. So it usually works as a tax deduction, doesn't it, franking credits? The franking credits
2: credits do, Yeah, It's a rebate on your tax for the tax the company's already paid on the profits, which have then gone to fund the dividend that they've sent you.
3: It's pretty unique, isn't it, around yeah, the world?
2: Yeah, it is, yeah.
3: Yeah, it was Paul Keating, I think, it that was, brought yes. that in. Yeah, yeah, no double taxing of dividends. Yeah. Anything else that you've learned over the last two and a half years with QAV?
2: Yeah, I think the tools have become better. I've become more rigorous. So before I started doing QAV, I was doing it myself in a lot more of a manual way than what I'm doing it now. And a large part of that is because some of the great minds in our community have come up with really good tools. So... We have a great spreadsheet programmer, Brett, who has put together a a way of calculating our buy and sell prices based on the charts for the stocks and another member, Andrew, who redid my spreadsheet in a much better way than what I had done it (laughs) because he's a professional modeler. And yeah, so that's just a couple of tools which people have brought to us and offered it to the group. And it's made everything, again, simpler and more rigorous and
3: quicker to use, which is great. I also notice there's always a lot of discussion about the three-point trend line. Correct. I mean, we can't really show that, but um, this is really a technical tool which Mm. shows a buy price and a sell price. Correct. And it's a very, very simple technical tool, isn't it?
2: It is, yeah. So I'm not a big fan of charting, and I've had a good look at it over the years. And and certainly I'm not going to say people can't make money out of it, and they obviously have. But I tried to just take one element of it, and the simplest element I could find is that if you look at a price graph for a company, and generally over a longer term, so I use five years and monthly data. So I'm not seeing too many wiggly lines. I'm seeing trends. The stock price moves in channels. Even if it's going up, it generally has an upper bound and a lower bound and sort of follows a funnel or a path Mm. on the way up. And the same when it's going down. So I'm trying to draw a line for the downtrend and a line for the uptrend. And when they break those lines, that becomes a buy or a sell signal.
3: Yeah. Well, you see a lot of those Bollinger Bands and Mm. things like that in these tools. And it's like that. It's a channel, isn't it? And you can see something. And that channel either, like I think with Bollinger Bands, the channel expands or Mm -hmm. contracts as it's going in a particular direction. And that supposedly has got signals as well.
2: Oh, there's many different versions. Yeah, many of of them. Um, Moving averages are another one which people use. And again, nothing wrong with any of those. I find with moving averages, they tend to lag a bit. Like if it's, a say, a three-month trend over a 12-month trend or whatever, Mm. you've got to wait for the three months before you see the move whereas if you're drawing a line across the bottom of the troughs or across the top of the peaks you'll see it the day it crosses so you get a much earlier signal but again you're just trying to keep it as simple as possible but again pick that benefit out of that particular history of share market analysis that we can add into our process to make it better
3: Well, I think it's just also just important to understand how markets work and that Mm. price action is actually part of it. If Mm. you're not going to become a technical trader, I mean, that's a whole other discipline as well. But understanding how it works and just being able to even look at a chart and look at a company's share price over a period of time shows a lot of things.
2: It does. And it's particularly valuable for a value investor because the traditional value investor wouldn't look at the chart. They'd say, okay, CSL's cheap now and I'm going to buy some. Oh, CSL is still going down. What do I do? Okay, I'll buy some more. I'm convinced that my story and my valuation is correct. Whereas what we do is we say, well, here are the couple of hundred companies that meet our broad checklist. Let's now look at the sentiment of them because for some reason, these companies, their share price is still going down. Do we have a high enough conviction to override that? Or do we just say, there's another 100 companies that are going up that we can buy into that still meet the same criteria. Mm. And so that's the basic philosophy behind it is that sentiment is the hidden hand, I guess. It's the consensus of what everyone else thinks about the shares. And, you know, it's the wisdom of the crowd. So I think what QAV does is it takes a contrarian point of view, but it also combines it with the wisdom of the crowds because... It's a market, right? I don't want to stand on the hill and, you know, be buffeted by the storm because I'm right. I want, <laughs> I'd rather be at home with a cosy fire. and Or playing golf. Yeah, or playing <laughs> golf with other people who think the same <laughs> thing about the share that I'm buying. Like I said, if there's just so many opportunities out there. You don't need to hold on to a falling stock, even if, if it does meet our value and quality metrics.
3: So people can find out more by going to... Podcast.com.au. And also there's the podcast as well. Yes, that's right. You're the fabulous Cameron, (laughs) Riley.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And look, that's the other learning I've had over the last two and a half years we've been doing it. I mean, Cam's turned this into a great business. He's really done a great job and, you know, fostering the community and all that kind of stuff and helping people learn the process. That's a real interesting dynamic. So... I don't think people talk about investing in finances enough with their families, with their kids, with their friends. And I'd known Cam for a dozen years before we started talking about this, because I just don't. Normally, talk about investing with people. Mm. People are more likely to talk about the price of their house or what house prices are doing rather than what the share market's doing. They leave it to somebody else. But I think um, when Cameron sort of learnt what I did and the process I used, he said, "We've got to tell people about this. We've got to put it together into a podcast." And and I think, like I said before, it's tapping into this desire from people to learn more about it. It's not taught in schools. I don't think it's taught at universities. I don't think you can do a course on value investing or technical analysis Mm. or whatever at universities you can certainly do economics and and that kind of financial it'll be
3: touched on yeah
2: yeah Mm. but they don't teach it at at universities so where do you learn about it it's got to be through word of mouth or doing your own research or reading books or whatever
3: and of course uh, listeners can use the promo code sfb to get a 20 percent discount as well Mm -hmm. yeah which is fantastic thank you yeah (laughs) sfb shares for beginners yeah tony kyniston thanks very much again for joining me today great thanks phil good to see you again If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for
1: Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding
3: your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,